0: Today's scripture reading is found in Habakkuk, chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk is located near the end of the Old Testament, so if you go to Matthew, you are too far. Go back. <laughs> and uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 785, page 785 in your Pew Bible. Now, before we read this passage, you know, I want us to pay attention to the different perspective in this passage. Verse 1 to verse 4 is about Habakkuk complaining to God. And verse 5 to verse 11 in chapter 1 is about God's answer. And then verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 1, again, is Habakkuk perspective. So let's pay attention to that as we go through this passage together. Let's stand and read God's inerrant word. The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you are not here? Or cry to you violence, and you are not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe if told. For behold, I am rising up the Chaldeans, the bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to cease dwelling not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. O oh, their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own oh, mind is their God. Are you now from everlasting, O oh, Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook and drag them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and make offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us
1: once more. Oh, holy God, we thank you for this holy word that was just read. And now we ask for your Holy Spirit to come to accompany the preaching of that word so that your purposes may be accomplished in our hearts, our lives, that you might be glorified, and that we, your people, might be built up. Oh Lord, we pray that your word may give us clarity to some perplexing questions and that we might come away. Uh, with a greater sense of your beautiful, sovereign, yet mysterious design for our lives and this world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I love about the Bible is just how willing it is to present biblical characters in very real moments of weakness. There's no attempt in scripture to to just offer us a sanitized view of these characters always at their best moments. No, instead, we get glimpses of very raw moments when they are struggling, when they are at their most vulnerable. And that, my friends, is what we see here in our text, here in the book of Habakkuk. We get a glimpse of a prophet of God in a moment of vulnerability. Where he is wrestling with questions of faith and theology. Now, usually when you are reading a prophetic book, the prophet is speaking on behalf of God to the people, but notice here how in Habakkuk we have this unique opportunity to hear a prophet speaking to God, asking his own set of questions, but really he speaks as a proxy for all of us. Now, because his questions are are the same questions that have, that have really pestered and plagued people since ancient times. What he's asking is nothing new. It's what people have been asking for centuries. Habakkuk is raising the age-old problem of evil and justice, Evil and injustice. That's what he's addressing. Now, the problem can, can simply be put together like this. If God exists but does not stop evil and injustice in the world, then he might be an all good God, but not all powerful. Or he's an all powerful God, but not all good. Either he can't stop evil or he doesn't want to. That, my friends, is the problem. How can God be both all good? And all powerful, if all this horrific violence and injustice is plaguing our world and affecting our own lives? How can this be? Now, I know some might say that this is really only a problem for people of faith. Their simple solution is uh, to the problem of evil and injustice is to just reject the notion of God altogether. Now, many who arrive at this conclusion were sent down this path of atheism after wrestling with all of the cruelty and injustice shot throughout the world. This was actually the experience of C.S. Lewis. That's how he originally, that's why he originally rejected the notion of God until, that is, he realized that evil and injustice are more problematic for the atheist. He writes this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world really was unjust and not simply that it didn't happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turned out to be too simple. In other words, if you're an atheist, if there's no ultimate meaning or standard of right or wrong in the universe, then why is it a problem? that evil and injustice exist. I mean, isn't that to be expected? And how can we complain about something being unjust if there is no objective standard of justice out there? But if we all have this intuitive sense that there are real injustices in the world, that evil really is a problem, then it doesn't help us to reject the notion of God. Instead, it would be much more helpful to be able to query God to be able to bring our questions to him. And that, my friends, is what we are encouraged to do here in the book of Habakkuk. This book invites us to wrestle with questions of theodicy. Now, a theodicy, in case you're not familiar with that term, a theodicy is an attempt to explain how God is just and how he is also both all-good and all-powerful despite the presence of evil and injustice in this world. It's derived from the Greek word for, for God, theos, and the word for justice, dike. So putting the word God and justice together, a theodicy is an attempt to demonstrate the justice of God, or in other words, to justify God. And that is why we're calling this sermon series through Habakkuk, The Justification of God. The goal here in this series is to show, through the book of Habakkuk, that God is just, that he is good, and that he is sovereign, and to do so without dismissing the problem of evil and injustice and all of the pain that they bring about in our lives. So this morning, what we're going to be doing is just to sit in the first chapter of Habakkuk, and I want us to consider three things, three points to draw out of this first chapter. And if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline with the three points listed for you. First, we're going to consider man's perennial complaint. Second, God's perplexing answer. And third, justice's appalling instrument. All right, so let's dig a little deeper into man's perennial complaint. And we can just sum it up like this. Why, oh God? Why? Does God allow evil to persist and evildoers to prosper? Why does evil exist and evildoers prosper? Why does God delay in establishing his righteousness and his justice on earth? That's the question. That's the perennial problem that has perplexed people for centuries. And long before Habakkuk, the biblical authors were already asking the same questions. David, King David, he faced a lot of injustice in his life, and he asked many of the same questions as he was crying out in his psalms. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And outside of Scripture, three centuries before Christ came along, the Greek philosopher Epicurus was asking, Whence evil? Where did evil come from? Whence evil if there be a God? If there is a God, then what is the source and origin of all this evil? And since then, thinkers and theologians like Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Voltaire, they have all been uh, given attempts to tackle this question. The Scottish philosopher and skeptic David Hume, he's the one who put into words the now familiar argument, if God knows there is evil and can't stop it, then he's not all-powerful. If God knows there there is evil, he can stop it, but he doesn't want to, then he's not all good. He's the one that uh, uh, put together that argument. So even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle addressed this problem through the mouth of his most famous character, the detective Sherlock Holmes. This is what Holmes says What is the meaning of it, Watson? What object is served by this circle of misery and violence and fear? It must tend to some end or else our universe is ruled by chance, which is unthinkable. But what end? What purpose? There is the great standing perennial problem to which human reason is as far from an answer as ever. So even the world's greatest detective couldn't solve the problem of evil and injustice. And what he said there at the end is right. Human reason is still as far from an answer to this perennial problem. And that's why Habakkuk doesn't look to human reason. Instead, he goes to God. and He looks for divine reason. He encourages us to also go to God with our questions, to go to God with our complaints. Did you notice? Did you notice how Habakkuk's questions were actually called complaints? Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will take my stand at my watchpost. I will look out to see what he will say to me and, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So we're not exaggerating to say that Habakkuk was complaining to God. Now, I know that might feel wrong to you. It might feel like it's not something you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to complain to God. But remember, these are inspired words of Scripture, So this kind of complaint can't be wrong if it's divinely inspired. You know, there's another term in the Bible for a complaint that's directed towards God. It's called a lament. The Bible is filled with lament. Laments are are found in in the book of Psalms. I mean, a third of the Psalms would be classified as Psalms of lament. And there's even a, a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. What do you think that's about? one big lament. So here's the key, friends. Here's the key. As long as the complaint is directed towards God, it's considered a lament. But when it becomes a complaint about God directed towards man, well then that's when the Bible uses another term for it and calls it grumbling or murmuring. So to whom the complaint is being directed makes all the difference here. If you're complaining to each other about God and the problem of evil, then yes, you're guilty of grumbling. But if you're willing to bring it to God in the form of prayer or in the form of lamentable praise, then you are actually demonstrating a very mature form of faith. And if you think about it, All forms of lament, all all questions of theodicy are ultimately rooted in faith. It's because you believe that God is real and that he is good and that he is sovereign. That's the reason why the persistence of evil and injustice is a problem to you. So what Habakkuk is doing in posing these questions to God is that he's trying to understand What he believes to be true about God's character as revealed in the Word doesn't seem to square with God's action or his inaction as observed in the world. There's a disconnect, and Habakkuk is trying to find the connection. This is what what St. Anselm, uh, a 12th century bishop of Canterbury, St. Anselm, this is what he called faith-seeking understanding faith seeking understanding. You see Habakkuk doesn't have blind faith here. If someone were to tell him, "Hey, hey, Habakkuk, come on man, stop stop your questioning. Stop complaining to God. Don't you have faith? Just just believe God. Just believe him." And he would probably push back and say, "Yes, I I I do believe, which is why I want to understand." Which is why I'm bringing these questions, even these complaints, to God. These questions, these complaints, are a form of faith seeking understanding. So let's, let's look more closely at this first complaint that's found for us in verses 2 to 4. Let, let me just read a portion of that again. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and, will you, not, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence. And you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Now, in his first complaint, Habakkuk's eyes are focused on domestic problems, on the moral and and the legal corruption that's plaguing the nation of Judah. Why, O Lord, will you tolerate all of this wrongdoing in the land? Why do you idly watch as justice is perverted? That's what he's asking. Now, I know some historical background would probably be helpful for you. So Habakkuk was most likely issuing this complaint sometime after the untimely death of the good king Josiah. Last week, Minister Stan reminded us that Judean society was experiencing a sharp moral decline under the reign of King Manasseh. And his grandson, Josiah, he tried to turn things around, but all hope of reform was, was, was dashed when he died in battle against the king of Egypt. And Josiah's chosen heir was deposed, and another son of his named Jehoiakim was set up to be this vassal king under uh, the reign of, really, the king of Egypt. Jehoiakim, we're told, was a wicked king. He did what was evil in the sight of God. And in the book of Jeremiah, it it describes for us how corrupt society became became under the the, the rule of Jehoiakim. We're told that the rich were exploiting the poor and shedding innocent blood. The priests were self-serving. The prophets were liars. I mean, this was just a degradation of society. and, And this was essentially life under Jehoiakim's reign. Now that just makes sense of what we read uh, in verses three to four. Habakkuk, if you look with me there, he identifies six aspects of corruption. You have iniquity and wrong, destruction and violence, strife and contention, which resulted in three consequences. The law is paralyzed, justice is stifled, and the righteous are surrounded by the wicked. And what did all that lead to? We'll just look there with me at the end of verse 4. So justice goes forth perverted. Not only is the land filled with injustice and wrongdoing, the legal system is now paralyzed, and there is no remedy in the law. There is no justice. And Habakkuk's complaint to God is, Why? Why? Why do you look idly upon all of this injustice? Why do you delay your judgment? How long, oh Lord, are you going to tolerate this state of affairs? And friends, I know you may be feeling the same thing. As you look upon the moral degradation and corruption of our, of our society, of our land, How long, O Lord, will the ugliness of racism and the stain of our nation's racist past continue to plague us? How long, O Lord, will will the rich and powerful be allowed to exploit the poor and needy? How long, O Lord, will the most helpless and vulnerable among us, widows and orphans, unborn children, refugees, how long will they go on being marginalized and ignored? And, and probably you've experienced evil injustice on a personal level. Maybe you're the victim of, of some gross injustice and, and the wrongdoer has just gone on unpunished. They're enjoying life. They've moved on. But you're the one left with the wounds and this gnawing sense of injustice. And if that's you, well, I hope the one takeaway that you, that you have from, from Habakkuk 1, the one thing you're walking away with is the knowledge that it's okay to question. It's okay to even complain. Just bring it to the Lord. Make sure you're going to the Lord with those complaints, with those questions, and you can know that he can handle it. He invites it. Bring it to him. But be prepared, because how God answers well, that might surprise you. He may not answer in the way that you would expect or the way that you would like him to, and that's what Habakkuk experienced. Let's move on now to verses 5 to 11, and let's consider God's perplexing answer. Habakkuk's attention up to this point, as we said, has been on domestic problems within his own nation, but here, starting in verse 5, the Lord directs his eyes up to now look upon the international scene and to see what he's been doing there. So look at verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. So Habakkuk had been complaining about the moral corruption of his nation and how justice is a long time coming, and God's response is, yes, Habakkuk, you're right. Judah is guilty of evil and injustice. And so look, look up and see, I am raising up the Chaldeans to carry out my justice. Okay, now that is not what Habakkuk was expecting to hear. God's answer doesn't point to to better days on the horizon. No, it points to worse days, to being besieged to being overrun by a nation more evil and more corrupt than them? The Chaldeans here, if you're not familiar with that term, it's an older term for the nation that we know as the Babylonians. But before they defeated the Assyrians, before they established Babylon as their capital, they were known as Chaldeans. And they already had a reputation for being a very cruel and fearsome people. Under Nebuchadnezzar, they besieged and they defeated the Assyrians at Nineveh. And then after that, they defeated the Egyptians in open battle at Carchemish. And so the two most dominant empires at the time were crushed by this ascendant nation The see the ascended Babylonians. And from this point in world history, the, Assyrian, uh, the Assyrians just ceased to exist, and Egypt was no longer considered a significant force in the ancient Near East. From this point on, it was all about the Babylonians. And all of that corresponds with the way that they're described for us in verses 6 to 11. Look there, in verses 6 to 11, they're described there as a bitter and hasty nation. They were cruel and impetuous. they were quickly taking over huge swaths of land. They were disrupting the power balance on the international scene. And look at verse 7, how, how it describes them as, as they are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. You see, these Babylonians were so dreaded because they didn't abide by by any international norms or standards of warfare. No, their justice, as it says, went forth from themselves, meaning that they were a law unto themselves. They did whatever they wanted, and what they wanted was often violent and atrocious. And they didn't care. Look at verse 10 At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Their own might was their God. That is, that is that they idolized their military might. Sure, they they had a pantheon of gods. Those gods had names. But if you were to dig down deep, if you were to examine their their fundamental religious beliefs, it all just came down to might makes right. Because they they were stronger than other nations, and so they believed that they could just take whatever they wanted. They deserved whatever they wanted. And what they eventually wanted was Jerusalem. And that's what God predicted. Now, at this point in Habakkuk, that has yet to happen. Jerusalem still stands. But eventually, because of the revolt of Jehoiakim, remember that wicked king of Judah, he's going to revolt against Babylon. He's going to revolt against Nebuchadnezzar, and the great Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is going to come and lead his army to besiege Jerusalem, and the city would eventually fall in 597 B.C., and after a subsequent revolt by the vassal king that Nebuchadnezzar puts in place after Jehoiakim, the Babylonians would return once again, and then they would finish the job. They would completely destroy the city in 586 BC. They would end up demolishing the temple of God and deporting all the people to Babylon. So God's answer, his perplexing answer to Habakkuk's question is the infamous Babylonian exile. Yes, my people have grown corrupt. Yes, they have sinned against me greatly. So yes, discipline is coming. I will chastise them. And look, look, I'm going to use the Babylonians. I'm going to use exile as a way to execute my justice. Now, don't get the wrong impression. It's not as if the Babylonians were these willing servants of the Lord. No, no. They are a guilty, they are a wicked and guilty people, as emphasized for us in verse 11. They, they, they're still accountable, that is, for their violence and for all of their corruption. As God makes clear, as he's going to in the next chapter, judgment is still coming for Babylon. But friends, the main lesson for us to draw here, though, is that God is completely Sovereign even over the wickedest of nations. Godless kings, like like Nebuchadnezzar, they're not trying to serve the Lord. Their own might is their God. They worship their own power. They serve their own purposes. But in the end, powerful kings are mere pawns within the sovereign purposes of God. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says this, the king's heart, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it. He turns the king's heart wherever he will. So again, King Nebuchadnezzar is still morally responsible for his evil actions as ruler of a very evil nation. He's going to get his. But the point is, is to stress the absolute sovereignty of God in that the free-willing actions of every single person, even the most powerful, are somehow folded into God's eternal and sovereign purposes so that even as we are doing our heart's desire, the Lord is turning it wherever he will. I know that's hard to understand. It was hard for Habakkuk to understand. I and mean, that's why the Lord says, I'm about to do a work that you wouldn't believe even if I told you. But there is a reason why the Lord did tell Habakkuk and why he wanted his people to grapple with this perplexing answer to this problem of evil. There's a reason why he wanted his people, his people of faith, to seek understanding so that it would better prepare them for a future day when he would do another work in their midst, one that is even more perplexing. Because one day, in the same city of Jerusalem, God would gather together a wicked king, a pagan governor, Roman soldiers, and religious leaders, and he would fold together all of their wicked intentions into his sovereign purposes to provide a final answer to the problem of evil and injustice. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Friends, Do you see how the cross of Christ is an even more perplexing answer to the problem of evil? It involves the raising up and the gathering together of of even more wicked people to accomplish an even greater injustice, all for the purpose of carrying out divine justice. Now, that, my friends, was hard. It's hard for Habakkuk to grasp. And that's that's what led to a second complaint for him found in verses 12 to 17. Look back there at the text and consider with me our third point, justice's appalling instrument. And notice what Habakkuk finds so appalling. It's not the fact that God would bring justice against his people. I mean, that's exactly what the prophet was asking for in the first place. That was his first complaint. He agreed that judgment was necessary. He wanted God to come and to address these injustices, but Habakkuk was appalled that the Lord would use the Babylonians of all people as his instrument of justice. Now, based on some hints at the beginning of, and at the end of chapter 3, at the beginning beginning and end of chapter 3, you get these little hints that Habakkuk was not only... Uh, a prophet, but he was most likely as well a temple musician. And so if he was someone very familiar with temple worship, then he would have been well aware of the importance of holiness and purity because all the objects, all the instruments of temple worship had to be pure. They had to be consecrated for holy use. So that's what perplexed him. How can a pure and holy God use an instrument so profane, so impure as the Babylonians? Listen to how he voices his complaint in verse three. Verse 13: "You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he?" Habakkuk is essentially saying, Lord, I'm glad to hear that justice is coming to answer the problem of evil, but why would you use a people more wicked than your own in order to accomplish this end? This is, as we've noted, not just a question he's posing, but a complaint that he's lodging. But it's not a sinful complaint, it's not a grumble. Because it is coming out of a posture of faith. Did you notice how in verse 12, Habakkuk addresses this complaint to Yahweh, to the Lord, there in small caps. That's a hint that this is referring to the proper name of God, Yahweh. He's addressing it to my God. He says, to my Holy One, to my rock. That's who he's addressing this complaint to. So even while he's genuinely perplexed, notice how Habakkuk's underlying faith in God remains firm. His convictions are deeply rooted because his faith is built upon the rock, which makes him certain, as he says, that we shall not die. That is, God's people will be preserved because God's eternal purpose is to redeem a people for himself will certainly be fulfilled. But while Habakkuk acknowledges in verse 12 that the Lord has ordained the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment and reproof. His his hang-up here is in verse 13. It's that God would use such a wicked people to accomplish his plans. And he goes on in verses 14 to 16 to describe the Babylonians as how how wicked they are. He he, he describes them as fishermen who mercilessly capture and catch people in large nets And then sell them and profit off them. And after making a great catch, what do these fishermen do? They go on and they worship their nets. In other words, the Babylonians are worshiping their strength, their might. Their might is their own God. So Habakkuk ends his complaint in verse 17 by questioning if God is going to let them get away with this. Will he allow them to continue terrorizing the nations? And again, the prophet agrees. He agrees with the need for chastisement. He agrees that Israel deserves to be punished. But utter destruction and deportation at the hands of these wicked Babylonians? Lord, isn't, isn't that a bit excessive? I mean, I, I know we're bad, but are we really that bad? Isn't that going too far? But friends, there is good reason why God would use such an appalling instrument to carry out justice. Because, again, it would better prepare God's people for the day that he turned to an even more appalling instrument of justice, the cross of crucifixion. I mean, have you ever wondered why the cross? I mean, wasn't the cross just a bit excessive? I mean, perhaps you've seen a movie depicting Christ crucified. If if you were able to sit through that and watch that, I'm sure it was a horrifying sight. Isn't there another way to deal with evil and injustice without resorting to such violence? Isn't God too pure, too holy, to use such a horrific, appalling instrument of torture? But friends, it had to be the cross because Yes, we really are that bad. Our sins are that appalling that only the cross could bring about justice. If anyone questions or if anyone complains to God now about the evil and injustice in the world, about it being too much to bear, he can say, look at the cross of crucifixion. Look there where my son bore the guilt of evil and injustice, evil and injustice that he himself did not commit. There he bore the full weight of justice and it crushed him to death. That's my answer. That's my answer. If anyone questions whether I care to do something about evil and injustice in this world, look to the cross. Friends, The big takeaway here, the big takeaway in Habakkuk is that perfect justice is coming. It may take longer than you expect. It may arrive in a form that you find perplexing. It may use an instrument that you consider appalling, but judgment is coming. No evil will be idly ignored. Perfect justice will be carried out. You can be sure of it. And the only question left is a question left for each of us to personally answer. It's the question of where. Where will this perfect justice be carried out? Where is it going to be? Is it going to be on you? Is it going to be on your head at the final day of judgment? Or is it going to be on Jesus, on his shoulders? On the cross of crucifixion, where, oh, where will the wrath of God's justice burn? In the pioneer days, living out in the prairies, settlers would sometimes find themselves in great danger. Great danger of being burned alive. Because prairie fires were common, and prairie fires would burn fast and hot. And they could reach up to 700 degrees Fahrenheit. They can travel at speeds of 600 feet per minute, too fast to outrun, even on a horse. So if you were a settler in those days, if you saw a prairie fire bearing down on you, what would you do? How would you survive? Well, you would do what all homesteaders were taught to do. You would grab your family, You would run out to the edge of your harvest field. You would stoop down and you would light your field on fire and you would watch your entire livelihood burn up and become a burnt patch on the ground. And then you would take your family and you would run out into the middle of what was once your field and there you would huddle together as the prairie fire roars towards you. And you would feel the heat as it draws up near raging right up to the edge of your field. But there it would stop. Finding no more fuel to burn, the fire would turn to the left and to the right, and it would rage on, passing you by. And you and your family would be safe because you hid in the spot where the fire had already burned. And that, my friend, is a picture of the gospel. Perfect justice is coming, burning hot, burning fast. And the only safe ground is where the wrath of God, of God's justice, has already burned. And that safe spot is Christ crucified. You find safety by hiding in Christ. Church, we're going to continue wrestling with this perennial problem of evil and injustice as we go on through the rest of the series in Habakkuk. I mean, we're not done yet with this subject. I know there are still many questions to address, but let's just first deal with the personal question. Let's deal with the personal problem of our own evil and injustice manifested in our own sins. And just know that the gospel invitation still stands come and hide in Christ where justice has already been served and where mercy awaits. Let me pray for you. Father, may you open up our eyes to see the realities of the gospel, the realities of our sin and of judgment to come, the realities of your perfect justice, but also the gospel truth that Christ has come, has bore our sins on the cross, and that your justice has been served. Your wrath has burned there on the cross. So may we find our hope and salvation hidden in Christ, in Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen.